0: It's the Listen Up Milwaukee Podcast. Welcome to our podcast. I am your host of the Listen Up Milwaukee Podcast, Steve Italiano, and I'm here with my co host, Aaron Koenig. Welcome. Hi. And today we are fortunate to have with us, Kate Jurgens, uh, native Milwaukeean. Absolutely. And, um, registered nurse. Registered and nurse. And author. And author. And author of the book, um, uh, Moe, a Lowy Dietz memoir. Close. Oh, I, you know, I, I do this a lot. Sorry.
1: Lowy's Dietz syndrome memoir.
0: Oh, okay. I left out a word. Okay. I thought I, it was memoir. It was memoir. It's part
1: part <laughs> of my problem is, is I ran out of creativity by the end of writing the book. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'll get to that later. Okay.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, so welcome, Kate. Thank you very much for taking time out of your, I know I know what is your very busy schedule, especially this welcome. time of year right now, for coming at, and, and joining us on this. So Kate, tell us a little bit, give, give us a little bit of your background. You're a native Milwaukeean and take it from there.
1: Well. Uh, Yes, I pretty much lived in Milwaukee my whole life, um, except for three years when my husband was going to school in Indiana. So while he was getting his doctorate at IU, I worked in a neonatal intensive care unit at the Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. But otherwise, I'm pretty much born and bred here in Milwaukee, uh, as was my mother. um, And she met my dad at Marquette in the 50s, and then they lived in Colorado for a little bit and then moved back to Milwaukee and I'm the youngest of five siblings. Uh, I grew up on the east side of Milwaukee and I went to St. Robert grade school. And so I, did you grow up in Shorewood? I did grow up in Shorewood, very proud of that. And then I went to St. Robert grade school and then I went to Divine Savior Holy Angels for high school. And then I went to Marquette University um, College of Nursing, which is where I also met my husband who's a graduate of Marquette University. And then he went on to IU for his doctorate in optometry uh, while I practiced as a neonatal intensive care nurse. And then when he was finished, we moved back to the east side of Milwaukee. And I started working um, at what is now Columbia St. Mary's. It was St. Mary's at the time when we moved back in the early 90s. Uh, And we have four children. We have Charlie, who will be 24 next week. We have Mo, who's going to be 22 in June. We have Tim, who will be 21 in August. So you can do the math on that one. Uh, <laughs> and Bridget will be 16 in July.
0: And currently, you are you're still working as a
1: yes, as, as a... a registered nurse. Um, I'm a nurse case manager uh, at Columbia St. Mary's. When I when I graduated from Marquette in 1988, uh, I worked at Children's Hospital when it was downtown. It's now a dorm for Marquette uh, because they moved the hospital out to the medical college grounds. And uh, so I worked at the old hospital and then got to work in the quote unquote new hospital. Unfortunately, people that come to Children's Hospital Milwaukee or Children's Hospital of Wisconsin now, when they look at the old building on the medical college campus, they think that's the old hospital. Oh. And then when we tell them, no, it's 17th in Wisconsin, they're kind of think you're a little nutty, I think, sometimes <laughs> when we talk about that. But um, I worked there. Then we moved to Indiana. I worked in Indiana. Then when we moved back, um, I worked at Columbia St. Mary's in their neonatal intensive care unit. I also did some pool nursing uh, over at Children's for a while. And then when we started our family, I was still working in the neonatal intensive care unit, but uh, I had a great interest in childbirth education. And so I was able to teach a number of expectant parents. And then after Mo was born, um, a job opportunity came open to be able to coordinate the childbirth education program on St. Mary's campus at first. But as the hospital systems grow, as they have been um, all across the world and all across the United States, but on the east side of Milwaukee, Uh, Columbia and St. Mary's, those two hospital programs came together. So at one point, I was actually coordinating the education program across three hospitals um, and in the meantime, had two other children, um, but really loved it. It really, uh, as much as I enjoyed neonatal intensive care nursing and as much of an extra education that was for me, um, being able to educate new parents and really focus on wellness and Healthiness for people and and healthy lifestyles and and what do we do to try to stay healthy when we're not only pregnant and and carrying a new baby but then be being healthy as a family growing together that was really important for me, um, and then uh, I'd say it was well, it was about two thousand and eight. I left Columbia St. Mary's for a period of time and went over to Children's and worked in their translational research unit um, for a few years. And then I started working in their insurance division and did home visits for the high-risk obstetric population in the city of Milwaukee, doing a thing called perinatal um, or prenatal care coordination, which is pretty much like case management. And so I was going into people's homes um, pretty much throughout Milwaukee County, but a lot of it was based in Central City, Milwaukee, um, helping uh, pregnant moms and their families with resources and making sure they got to their appointments and things like that. And then, unfortunately, I injured my back and could not do the drive anymore that I was having to do mm-hmm. each day. So I came back to Columbia, St. Mary's, and now I get to work with uh, OB-GYN residents i'm the case manager so i do all the intakes for the new pregnant people and then i'm their resource to try to help them figure out city resources you know whether it's healthcare resources, resource um, education resources shelter resources a number of things um, and i've been doing that for four years now actually right now is kind of an exciting time the group OBGYN residents have a four-year program and then they graduate and so the residents right now at Columbia St. Mary's the the rotation of residents through there they also rotate at St. Joe's and Frederick they're getting ready to graduate in June and this is the group that I started with four years ago when I came back to Columbia St. Mary's Um, so it's been really great to watch them grow as physicians I think it keeps me young, but I do feel <laughs> like their mother and sometimes their grandmother, depending on what kind of day it is.
0: <laughs> and currently, you and your you and your husband live in. Uh...
1: We live in Shorewood. Um, we live only a few blocks from the house that I grew up in, and it's. Some people think maybe that's kind of odd, um, but it's kind of in my genetics. The house that I lived in uh, growing up was directly behind my grandparents' house, my my mom's parents. And then um, when my grandparents died, one of my sisters lived in their house for a while. So her children got to experience growing up behind their grandparents. And then they moved um, several years ago to a different community. Uh, but I have always been within blocks of my, my parents. And um, we wouldn't be where we are today without... Both of our families, but me personally, being that close to my parents has been really important. Sure, to be close by, and
0: that's that's uh, if, if that that is my dad's dream, that was my dad's dream. Every house that went for sale within half a block of his house, <laughs> everybody in the family was told about. Yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, and 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 truly, a, you know, something great. Um, and not really covered. Uh, but uh, in the book or, or anything that we've been talking about since you came by, but um, I think that's so important to have multi-generational input. You know, I think there is a part of, or at least part of a generation or a generation where grandpa and grandma moved to Arizona. They see kids on the holidays. They're not around. You know, I was fortunate enough, and, I'm, and I know yeah. you were too. I got to know four of my great-grandparents.
1: Wow. That's great longevity. <laughs> well,
0: it's uh I'd like to say it's clean living, but uh, <laughs> if you ever met anybody from my mother's family, you know that's a lie. <laughs> but um very important, I think, and and really I think that goes a long way to uh, what uh, a good mindset for kids, a good upbringing, a good background to see where they come from. Right. And that so.
1: Well, and I think Milwaukee in particular you know you go off to school and you meet people from around the country. Um, you know, I, I have friends, you know, later on in life, I didn't necessarily meet them in school, but in later in life that, you know, live in different countries and, you know, you see what different cultures and different customs are, Mm -hmm. whether that's culture by ethnicity or culture within a certain family. And sometimes when I think about Milwaukee and I think about the east side of Milwaukee having gone to school on the west side of Milwaukee and joking with friends of mine from, from high school about, Oh, well, Tosa is really just the west side Shorewood. But then <laughs> the Tosa people saying, well, Shorewood's really just the east side Tosa and those kind of things. But you look at, you look at communities around Milwaukee, you look at ba- the Bayview community. Um, you look at Tosa, you look at Shorewood or Whitefish Bay. Um, you look at um, like a Washington Heights neighborhood, you know, kind of picking these different areas in Milwaukee and families that don't go very far from that or they go away and they come back. Right, yeah. And you don't necessarily hear that in other cities. And when you talk to people that grew up in other cities and they've decided to stay in the Milwaukee area and, you know, questions come up like, are you related to everybody? (laughs) Or are you the mayor that you yeah. know everybody. <laughs> and then in healthcare, you know, you see a lot of people. When, when you're in a hospital, you know, a hospital is a, is a community base, right? Mm-hmm. So you're walking the halls and, you know, oh, hi, Mrs. So-and-so. Oh, how do you know her? Oh, well, she was the teacher at this grade school where so-and-so went to or, you know, those kind of things. Right. And I, sh- I know there's other cities like that in the United States, but when I think about Milwaukee... Being a quote unquote big city, it's still a small enough city that mm-hmm. you could play that Kevin Bacon game over right. and over <laughs> and over again.
0: <laughs> so, and uh, I think it's part of that, well, we're kind of got off topic and I apologize, no. but this is fun. Um, so currently you and your husband live in Shorewood. Yes. Um, two in college?
1: Uh Two in college and one in high school and one um, a two-year graduate. So Charlie graduated two years ago from Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design down in the Third Ward, okay. which uh, was really great. It was very interesting uh, on a lot of levels, but a perspective of coming from a nursing education where things, things are pretty laid out and specific and you have a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Um, having an art student. Is uh, interesting, like organization wise, and not that he was disorganized, but like I didn't, I didn't really know how to help guide him in his studies necessarily. Okay. Um, and he has done wonderful. He has a great job in Madison, um, and with a software, uh, it's facility management software, which. I'm sure he probably never thought as a graphic design, having a degree in, in graphic cool. design, he was going to work with engineers, but yep. he he enjoys it and and um, has done quite well. But as a parent trying to help your child education-wise, it was kind of a struggle for me at times because I'm like, I, I don't know anything about art fundamentals or do you need this credit to get to that credit kind right. of thing. So he's been out for two years. And then Mo is... Well, technically, she has her bachelor's of science in nursing as of this week because finals finished last week and she got her grades on Monday. Uh, but she's going to graduate from Marquette University uh, on Sunday.
0: Congratulations!
1: Yeah, thanks. It's um, it's really a really exciting, exciting time, right. emotional time. Um, and then Tim's right behind her, and he's at UWM, and he's studying computer science. And then Bridget is getting ready to finish her sophomore year at Dominican High School, Steve's alma mater. Yay, go, nights. Uh, go, go nights. nights. Go nights. Go uh, Knights. And I'm even having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that my, my youngest is going to almost be considered a junior in high school in another week.
0: Driving soon?
1: Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. She does not have an interest in driving yet. She talks about it a little bit but she's not like what I remember my other kids being or like what I would have been as mm-hmm. a high schooler but I think she's so involved in the theater department and campus ministry and a lot of things going on at mm-hmm. school that she just needs to kind of come up for air this summer and
0: mm-hmm. and and her her community, her school community, her parish community, your church community, your family, you're she's very close Proximity-wise, yes. to very all of much these things. so. Very much to all so. Of these things,
1: so. Yeah, and you know, we we made sure our kids knew how to ride the the 15, which isn't even the 15 anymore. It was at is the green line. And they they go by colors now. It's terrible. Well, you it's don't. not terrible, but um, <laughs> I I wouldn't. I mean, I know how to get from my house to Dominican on the bus, but it would. I'd call it the 15, but it's the green line now. Um, we've made sure that our kids are resourceful to know how to get to school right. and back without driving a car.
0: Right. Need be and well, and that's the millennial way, right? Is uh, <laughs> public transportation and urban living. Well,
1: so. yeah, maybe for your next podcast we'll have Charlie come on. He's he's doing a series of lectures on millennials. Actually, oh really? His part of his uh, th- graduation thesis or senior thesis at ed had to do with millennials and oh. how they're how they're viewed and what are they really about. And now he's been. He's on like a mini lecture circuit oh. for his company.
0: Well, if, if there's if there's no if there's no speaking fee, he's welcome to come. I will.
1: <laughs> we'll we'll pay him off in beverages or something. We can we can do that. We have.
0: Uh, I think I think I have stock in new Glarus for every time my brother in law comes over. Oh well, stock. yeah,
1: Charlie Mo would come for the new Glarus. Spotted cow is a good thing. Okay.
0: <laughs> um. So uh, the primary reason we would ask you over so mm-hmm. is to talk about. Your book, mm-hmm. um, Mole, is it a subtitle? It yeah, semicolon? it is a sub,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a subtitle. And, and truth be told, uh, the creativity and running out of energy in the end, I kick myself because uh, a good friend of mine, Dave Thome, who I had known as St. Robert Parent, but we got to know each other very well through our writing community, had said to me after I had already like put the paperwork through, he said, but she's the girl that lived. And Mo is a die-hard, die-hard Harry Potter fan. And I always kick myself that I did not tip my hat to Harry Potter a little bit oh. and have her be the girl that lived, which means then that now the second book will probably have that as the title. Okay, well, good. We'll <laughs> save, save the best
0: for last. Well, right? maybe. <laughs> one. Oh, so... The the book is about your your second child Mo yes Maureen Maureen um, because I, I have a theory on I, after reading it and um, y- y- we've been talking a little bit and you keep saying Maureen and I'm thinking okay that's Mo that's Mo that's Mo yes um, you know I think there was a point we'll get to this I'm sure uh, in the book where she became Mo correct um so um, and it forever stuck I would imagine so so the book. Revolt is primarily about Mo's early years up until about teenage. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the issues she's had in relationship to, uh, having Louis Dietz syndrome. Correct. How did this all come about? Uh, the 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 which part? Well, again,
1: genetics would tell us. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> well, let's let's talk about how the
0: book went together first. So, um, I think we know how Mo Mo got put together, but yeah. we'll we'll let that slide.
1: <laughs> well, as far as the actual book, in the end of you know having these papers, you know, to turn your pages or whatever. Um, started, first of all, not as, as a book, even about Mo or about Louise Dietz or about this journey that we've been on. I was actually, when I, I was talking uh, earlier about teaching childbirth classes and this passion that I had for educating new families, I was also trained as a doula and a doula is a um, professional labor support person and so i would teach classes but then i'd also hang out with people in labor and then i'd go and visit them after they had their baby and help them with their baby and along with having my own babies and working in the neonatal intensive care unit for a period of time but i had started writing a book about childbirth education and there's a lot of there's a lot of books out there about childbirth education there's theory books there's um, technical books. There's natural parenting. There's the Lamaze method. There's you know all this gamut of things. And while and, and this was probably when Mo was um, early grade school. When I had started, I mean I had several pages written and I had research done and things like that. And a really good friend of mine, Moore Andrews, pulled me aside in the St. Robert gym after basketball game. And this would have been then when Mo was in about fifth grade. And she said, I know you're writing that other book or you're trying to write that other book. She said, your book is staring you in the face. She said, what you have been through, this is what your book is.
0: I think I think we lost Erin. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we lost her. Um, had some connection problems earlier. So we'll see if she comes back. So I, okay. po- I apologize to fans of Aaron's. And to Erin, if she doesn't call back. Okay. Um, we, we, I think we lost her on the connection. So, oh, okay. Uh, sorry about that. No,
1: that's okay. Um, so, at any rate, Mora had said, you know, you need to really look at this. this. This is a story that needs to be written. It's a story that needs to be heard. Well, what this story came from was, first of all, from a number of my journals uh, when I was pregnant with Maureen and when I was then after Maureen was born. And some of it's that journaling of, um, you know, baby books and baby calendars and things like that. But when you have a child that is born with health issues and complicated health issues, it also, and you're also a nurse, then it also becomes... Documentation, documentation, documentation. There's an old saying uh, in the crowd of nurses that if it's not documented, it didn't happen. (laughs) And in the age of electronic health record, that kind of, um, sometimes that kind of challenges that Mm because there's check boxes and things like that and not as much narrative. But um, at any rate, uh, so I had a lot of journaling and and these things. Um, When Mo was born... My pregnancy was relatively healthy with Mo. Um, took her a little while to move, but once she moved, she was moving all the time, so okay. that was good. Um, it was in a day and age, if you can believe it, uh, believe it or not, they didn't do an ultrasound at a drop of a hat. Not everybody got ultrasounds unless you had some health issue that said, hey, we need a closer look. Um, ironically out of four children, Mo is the only one that did not have, I did not have an ultrasound with. Mm. Um, and I was at a period in my professional career where I was teaching so many childbirth classes and learning so much about birth and labor and how do you, how do you get yourself through that, that, uh, the rest of the pregnancy after about 24 weeks went really smoothly and, um... You know, I had Charlie, he was two and he was healthy and rambunctious like a two-year-old and, you know, and really looking forward to having another baby and all this. And when she was born, right away, um, Dr. Lynn, who uh, Jim Lynn, who born and bred in Milwaukee as well, um, his father was one of the founding OBs at North Point Clinic, which is now Prospect Medical Commons, Okay. Uh, along with my uncle, Dr. Richard Matthews my my mom's only sibling, who sadly passed away last summer um, and is a legend at the hospital. Um, Jim was working there, and he was my OB and a good, very dear friend of mine. And Maureen was born, and he noticed right away one of her feet, uh, her left foot was turned. And he said, I, I think it's positional. I said, okay. And he said, I'm just gonna take her over and take a quick check of her. And I was catching my breath and everything else that you do after you have a baby. <laughs> and I hadn't had pain medication, so I had to I was I was kind of on a high. I was excited <laughs> about that, but I was tired. Uh and he kinda did kind of a quick once over. Um my friend my dear friend Amy was my labor and delivery nurse. She took a picture of them together and then he had to quick uh go off to catch another baby down the hallway and Maureen was crying and then she calmed down and, you know, they bundled her up and they gave her to me and, you know, for a split second in my head when he said her foot was turned, I really didn't think much about it. But when Amy placed her in my arms and Maureen opened her mouth, um, I could see that she had a cleft in her soft palate. Her lip was was fine okay. and the roof of her mouth was fine but the back of her mouth um, that little thing that hangs down in the back of your throat is called a uvula she had two of them and mm. this kind of gaping hole and that was probably she was probably about 20 minutes old at that point half hour old mm-hmm. and that was when the world really started to change because I slowly unwrapped her blankets and started to look at her feet and they looked different and her hands couldn't open and that looked different. And that was kind of the top of the hill of the snowball mm-hmm. rolling down. And,
0: and I, and in the book, the sense I got is your mind starts racing. You have, I mean, you um, you're, you've been in the NIC unit for neonatal. You've seen some of this stuff before. You've seen probably bits of it all over mm-hmm. the you know over your over the years that you were a nurse in in I ICU for, and I, I got the sense that all of a sudden the gears were just spinning. I mean the tires were spinning off the car. Oh yes, and a million different things going through your head and trying to make that would imagine It's not like you're trying to make that diagnosis. What 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 do I have exactly <laughs>
1: exactly and which is an interesting um, dichotomy. It's an interesting conundrum because. It's hard enough to be a parent and be in a situation like, okay, something's not right here. But when you have taken care of babies that have multiple issues, the hospital I worked at in Indianapolis is very similar to our children's hospital here in Milwaukee where you see the sickest of the sick, you see the rarest of the rare. And I had had a number of years of that training. Um, There's got to be a term in cinematography, and I don't know what it is, all I can refer to it as is that like quick zoom, and they zoom up on somebody as the rest of the world is kind of spinning around behind them when they realize something mm-hmm. major has happened. And I, I always think about that, and that is kind of the sensation, if there's any way to explain the sensation, in, in those minutes and then hours and then days after Maureen was born. And so this is 1995 when she's born, and the neonatologist John Wolfe comes in, another really great physician and really great guy. Um, he's been in Milwaukee a long time, and uh, it was almost like I could finish his sentences, but the sentences weren't sentences, they were questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're going to draw this and this is what we're going to look for. But this could mean this or this could mean that. And that kind of started this really, really long road of lots of questions and, um, you know, trying to get answers and maybe thinking you have an answer and then you don't have an answer. And then you're okay with not having an answer because it's not the thing that you thought it might have been. And that would have not been so great or something. Mm
0: hmm. Now you said this is nineteen ninety five. Correct. And we were very, very limited. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing how I, I you know you and I are peers and I don't think of nineteen ninety five as being that far away. Correct. You know, I still think yeah I'm a senior in high school sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and and I liked my
1: junior year of college. That so was oh, like okay. that was a great
0: year. All right. I uh so it doesn't seem that far away, but uh, the technology and and I guess I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but you know we didn't decode the human genome till two thousand five
1: well two two thousand three four five okay, in ish. that area,
0: okay. so what was available as far as diagnostics for potential ge- genetic disorder. I mean, w- right. what what were the tests that were, were done initially to find, uh, to, to look for, if, if you will, a causation uh-huh. to these physical right. issues?
1: So when, um, when you have a baby born with physical characteristics of something and, and back then, okay, so we'll kind of take the internet out of it. Um, and I'm going to use a very common um, genetic syndrome that, just about everybody knows about, and that is Down syndrome or trisomy 21. And Down syndrome happens on a fluke because there's an extra chromosome, an extra 21 chromosome. And you, you get a set of chromosomes from your dad and a set of chromosomes from your mom, and you have 23 pair, and it should make 46 chromosomes. But in trisomy 21, there's an extra one. And so... You can have um, very, very common um, outward signs of Down syndrome they're very short-statured. Their fingers are very short. Um, Their tongue sometimes protrudes. The way that their eyes are slanted. um, They have uh, extra neck folds and things like that. So sometimes you can look at a baby right away and say, oh, I think this is what this is. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it might take a while as the baby ages over the next number of days and weeks if they're preemie. And then you're like, oh, but we send off blood work for chromosomes. And those chromosomes, they come back and they say, oh, we got an extra one here at 21. So in 1995, there was an ability to look at chromosomes. There was an ability to count chromosomes. There was an ability to take the arms and legs. Chromosomes kind of look like big X's. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was an ability to... Count the parts of those arms and legs, but there wasn't an ability to look on each of those arms and each of those legs for all the genetic code that could be raveled all around
0: it. So I'm going to liken this to somebody using, if the analogy is too simplistic, you can yell it. No. (laughs) Okay. My education stopped my senior year in high school, so... (laughs) But inside. it was a fine education it from was, the Dominican it, 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 nuns. It, it, it was a fine education, <laughs> but that's about as far as it went besides fluid dynamics at UWM for a little while. <laughs> um, I would liken to what, to, to make it, I think, maybe simplify it is the difference between using a magnifying glass to a microscope. How yeah. how far down you could drill in.
1: Yeah, and that that's actually a really good analogy, like that basis there. Because when the chromosomes were sent. One of the syndromes that they were thinking that Maureen may have had was a syndrome called trisomy 18 because some of her physical characteristics, the way she had two different types of club feet, um, the way her hands were contractured, the way that her face looked and her chin was really small and it was pushed back far. um, There were a lot of babies with trisomy 18 that would have those physical characteristics. And so, and there there was a whole list of things that they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And in some senses, it was a kind of a detailed list, but in other senses, it was a very basic list because of only the things that they could find Mm -hmm. at that time. So that when they called after the first 48 hours of chromosomes to say, well, you can leave the hospital now, but we still have to wait another 48 hours or so mm-hmm. um, to see if anything else grows in these cultures and things like that, that when we get her home, they called and they said, Hey, she has all her chromosomes. She doesn't have any extras. She doesn't have any deletions. She doesn't have any missing parts from any of the arms or legs. So this is great. And we're like, mm-hmm. Oh, this is so great. This is so great. Uh, followed by a pause of, but we're going to see you in the genetics office, you know, genetics office mm-hmm. in a couple months. and, and then we'll go from there and kind of move on. So it was at a point in time of technology of it's great. This is we only know what we only know.
0: Mm-hmm. So so at this point, as far as anybody could tell on a, a quick test, mm-hmm. everything's fine. Yeah. As, aside from having some some physical right. characteristics that let me be like an orthopedic issue. Correct. Having the soft palate yes. issue. And, and again, at, at this time, it, I would say somewhat easily correctable, or at least it had been done well, before. right, and that the, there
1: were procedures that would procedures be done. Them, and so. I, I think for myself, I won't speak for Brian, um, but for myself, and for a long time, and I think I probably even have a sentence about it in the book somewhere, about for a long time we just thought she just needed things that needed to get fixed. Um, clubfoot, clubfoot is very common that you can have a club foot and not have anything else anatomically out of place or wrong with a baby Mm -hmm. or, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a part of a syndrome. Same thing with a cleft palate, same thing with contractured, or when I say contractured, I'm talking about her fingers were caught against her palms.
0: So like she's born making fists.
1: Yeah. Born making fists, except for on her right hand, her straightest finger was her middle finger. And so there have been a lot of jokes about that (laughs) over the years. Um, And a lot of funny pictures. Um, but in, so in that regard, it was, oh, well, club foot. Okay. So we'll do this casting and then she'll probably have to have surgery, but then that'll be fixed. Oh, cleft palates, cleft and a soft palate. She'll probably be about nine months old. She'll have a surgery. She'll get it fixed. And we'll just kind of move on. Um, I don't take surgery lightly ever. Mm -hmm. And we've had a lot of experience of it in our household. Um, and I myself have only had a few I mean, I had a knee reconstructed and I had a discectomy when I blew a disc out in my back. Um, but beyond that, you know, some people, I think when they talk to healthcare providers, sometimes the healthcare providers can be kind of flippant about, oh, well, you know, just go to the OR and get that fixed or, oh, just take a pill for that or whatever it is. Right. And I have never really been one to um, sell myself on that idea. I, I like to try to be as minimal as possible in how you treat something, um, which is ironic because I was an intensive care nurse right? and stereotypically intensive care nurses are all about control and use the most high powered thing to get something done and, and those kind of things. And I think a lot of my um, training in childbirth education really helped to balance that um, to the to the point of some of my old NICU friends when we would be chatting about things and they'd be kind of joking with me and they'd say, oh, you're so crunchy granola. How did that happen if you're an intensive care nurse? <laughs> but I think what the gift in all that was is really understanding balance and really understanding that not, not every situation is a crisis, not every situation is intensive Not every situation has to jump to the highest degree of treatment. Let's try the practical things first. Let's try the easy things first. Let's, you know, go a natural route if that's the way you want to do it. And then if you need something beyond that, then we're going to start stepping in that direction. And I, I think that that has been kind of a helpful guide, at least for me, over the years, because I have great respect for technology. I have great respect for um, medicine and all the modern miracles that can happen. Um, but I don't necessarily jump to that right away. Okay. And I think that, once again, having been an ICU nurse, people are surprised by that. And it's kind of the understanding of, okay, if it's a healthy event, let's keep it as healthy as we can. And then if there's something unhealthy about it, let's see where we start first before we jump all the way to step ten on something. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
0: So at this point, as you stated, we need to get some things fixed up. Needed to to spruce her up. Needed the, and again we talked about the uh, the hands, the feet the soft palate, at what point, so she had several surgeries. Yes. By a, uh, well, let's see, I'm trying to think. I tried to add them all up and going through the And book, then you had a headache. And then, <laughs> then I ran out of fingers and toes. Yeah. Um, but it, it, for the first few years of her life, she was having a surgery a year almost, if not, um, or, or some or type several. Of, or some type of procedure.
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, math is not my strong suit. Which um, is why I have Tim, my son Tim <laughs> he' is my he's my accountant, he's my number guy, he's my statistics guy, he's my variable guy uh, Mo will be twenty two in June, and she's holding at twenty seven surgeries, so even in that, you could do simple math right um, in the first. Uh, first nine years, nine and a half years of her life, she had had 17 surgeries. Um, and so I should back up a little bit because we've been kind of meandering here. Um, Louis Dietz syndrome uh, is a connective tissue disorder. And connective tissue runs throughout your whole body. Pretty much it's everywhere. And it's the glue that keeps things together. And there's a lot of different parts to that glue. So depending on what kind of connective tissue disorder you have, you know, is it a collagen issue? Is it a fibrillin issue? Is it, you know, fill-in-the-blank issue? Um, Depending on how the genetics are changed in those small components, that's going to show you how things are are affected. And so um, some common connective tissue disorders or diseases that people have heard of have been things like lupus, uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, uh, Marfan syndrome, and goldman syndrome, Beals syndrome. Lois Dietz at the time that Moe was born, I'm sure people had Lois Dietz, but they didn't have a name yet. There wasn't the technology to find this genetic mutation in the TGFBR2 gene or TGFBR1, depending on which thing. Um, And uh, so there wasn't the ability to look for that. So for the first nine years of Mo's life, it was, she has parts that need to be fixed. Why do some of these parts keep wearing down? Why does she have all this like extra um like hyper flexibility kind of thing? you know she had a lot of great party tricks where she put her hit, you know feet behind her head and she could take one arm and reach it all the way around and touch her belly button and all these things when connective the, the type of connective tissue disorder that Louise Dietz is it at its very base. Uh, disrupts the tissue in what makes arteries in our body. And so your arteries are what deliver oxygenated blood everywhere, and then your veins are what return the blood to get more oxygen to send it back out again. And your main artery in your body is the aorta. And your aorta looks like a big candy cane. Um, it The root of it comes out of your left ventricle, so your main pump of your heart, and then it curves up here in the top of your chest, and then it goes down through the center of your body to feed these other arteries, to feed everything else in your body. And people get aneurysms mm-hmm. or these kind of swollen, ballooned growths in their different parts of their aorta for lots of different reasons. You can have people that don't have cont- connective tissue disease that get an abdominal uh, aneurysm. Mm-hmm. Uh, very classic, seventy white, 70s white male is classic for a trip, what we call a triple-A, an a, uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm.
0: My mother's Uncle Buck. <laughs> well, I was going to say. And
1: if somebody has at least one relative, right? Yeah. But Uncle Buck, I'm guessing, didn't have a connective tissue disorder, no, right? No, no. So, so you can have things like that. Um, people that suffer strokes and they live to tell the tale... Then they find out, hey, oh, I had this aneurysm and it went in my head or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Well, with these connective tissue diseases where you get aneurysms and there are several connective tissue disorders that kind of cross over one another. Mm -hmm. And I usually use um, Marfan or um, Ehlers-Danlos as kind of kissing cousins almost to Loewy's Dietz because of the type of aneurysm growth, there's several types of Ehlers-Danlos, and I should have looked it up before I came to be recorded, but I want to say it's type 6, but I could be wrong. That's the vascular type of Ehlers-Danlos. They're, in their molecular base, it's, it's a different thing that's affected, but you're still getting an aneurysm. So in, in Mo's case, when she was nine and a half. After she had had several orthopedic surgeries, ear surgeries, hand surgeries, foot surgeries, knee surgeries, uh, I had noticed she had had a she had had a spinal fusion when she was eight because her um, she had something that's actually very common in gymnasts. It's called spondylolithesis. Maureen used to use that word when she'd stump her teacher because the teacher would in fifth grade would say, "Bring me a word I can't spell," and if I can't spell it, I don't know. They got a treat or something. I can't remember that part of it. And the teacher finally had to tell Mo to stop bringing in medical terms. <laughs> um, but anyway, spondylolisthesis is a very common uh, issue with gymnasts because of how they bend their how they bend their backs, like they're doing back bends and twists and all of this. Mm-hmm. And with a spondylolisthesis, your your vertebrae um, they're stacked on one another to protect your your spinal cord and in a scoliosis, you get an S-curve of these bones. In a spondylolithesis, your vertebrae move side to side on one another. If you have a retrolithesis, your vertebrae move back and forth on one another. So it's a whole like lesson in physics and things that I was not very good at. At any rate, Mo had been diagnosed with the spondylolithesis when she was in first grade, and we watched it for a period of time, and then uh, John Thomas, who is the first specialist to take care of Maureen since she was six days old. He was a clubfoot specialist and a scoliosis specialist. So we had been seeing him all of her life. And he started to explain the spondylolisthesis. And is she in gymnastics? Well, no, she's not. Okay, well, don't have her start now. <laughs> um, and at some point, if she if it progresses, we're going to have to repair this. So she gets to be eight. They say, yep, it's starting to, we're starting to worry about the integrity of the spinal cord and we're, we want to protect that. And so we're going to do a spinal fusion. And up until that point, all of her surgeries had, they were surgeries and general anesthetic and that's a big deal. But the spinal fusion was a really big one. Like we had to figure out like blood transfusion stuff and Mm -hmm. things we hadn't really talked about in the past. Um, So she has a surgery in December the day after watching Marquette beat Notre Dame at the Bradley Center, mind you, which was awesome, December 1st,
0: 2002, I think. Not not that you were keeping track. No.
1: <laughs> not that I ever keep track of Marquette basketball or when they beat Notre Dame, which right. doesn't really happen anymore because they don't play one another. Right. Um We do the surgery, but I noticed when we took her for her pre-op exam that her heart rate was high, and she was so thin. She had such a thin stature that you could actually see her chest vibrating across the room, and I made a comment to the nurse practitioner doing the the pre-op work, and she said, Well, we'll keep an eye on it, and they'll keep an eye on it in surgery and those things. And so for several months as she recovered from a spinal fusion, her heart rate number came back down. And then all of a sudden she had a tumor growing in her ear. She, we had this mystery thing going on with her from the time she was a preschooler. She lost her eardrums, but we didn't know why. They just wore away, and they couldn't give us an explanation, which later on all these puzzle pieces fell into place. But she, um, we had this ear surgery done, and her heart rate was still high. And so, when she finally went to John Miller, um our primary care physician who we absolutely love, and he just retired recently, but we love Adam Blackwell too, so he's great. um when we went for her checkup he said well, is there anything left for me to even do for her birthday checkup because <laughs> she's you know and and it started out with, okay, Mo, show me your scars, how are your feet? how are your hands? How is your back, how are your ears, all these things? And I said, I'm really concerned about her heart rate. And he, I don't even think he had a stethoscope even on her chest. And he could hear this galloping in her chest. And right away said, you know, we need to get her out to Children's and we need to get her set up out in the heart center. And so then we started on that road and through an echocardiogram, they found an extremely large aneurysm in the root. So right coming out of, the um, pump of the heart, uh, about three quarters of the way up towards where the candy cane would curve, and the first thing out of the cardiologist's mouth was, "Has anybody ever been diagnosed with a connective tissue dis- disease or disorder in your family?" And I said, "No," and and it was kind of a repeated conversation, and he said, "I think she has something in that." area, and I think she has Marfan, and I said, well, they drew these chromosomes. He said, well, that was 1995, now this is 2004. Mm-hmm. We need to, there's technology now, and we need to go back to this.
0: So was it at this point, I mean, up until this point, you said you were fixing stuff, fixing stuff, fixing stuff. At this point, at what point did you did you start trying to dig into these and, and start looking for more answers other than, well, we just got to fix things?
1: Um, well, it kind of ebbed and flow. I would say ebb and flow would be a good phrase for that because certain things would get fixed and it'd be okay for a while and then something else would crop up. And I remember when Mo was about... Well, when she was a toddler, we started taking her to Dr. Watchmaker, who's an excellent hand surgeon and a wonderful human being. And I really appreciated his surgical approach because when he first met Maureen, she was a year. It was right around her first birthday. And he said, you know, I could do a lot of things to her hands right now just looking at her hands. But because we don't know what the basis is of this, we're going to take our time. And I always respected him for that because I think sometimes automatically people assume of surgeons that they're just going to get in there and cut up things. Well, and, they're cut happy. Yeah, and, yeah just, and, then, and just jump in there.
0: I'm a surgeon. This is what I do. I well, need to do surgery. right.
1: <laughs> and God bless Greg Watchmaker because he took his time and he tried to connect with people across the country. Mind you, this is before email and things. Um, but he couldn't find over the course of another year, year and a half. He couldn't find anybody that had hands like Moe's, and so then it was, and it was getting to a point where the function of her hands, she was losing function of her hands, and he said that's kind of the tipping point to try to decide what we want to do, and so that was kind of the idea behind that first of several hand surgeries that we did. Um,
0: and, and the first I aid- I don't remember. Her first hand surgery was?
1: Her first hand surgery, she was about two and a half years old. And what they did is they. um,
0: So he waited almost a year.
1: Yeah. We met him in June, I want to say, of 96. And he did not do that first operation until November of 97. Okay. So, um, and so the surgery itself went really well but the healing process was did not go very well and he was frustrated because they had to do skin graphing with it and he couldn't understand why these skin grafts weren't taking because of how they had worked in the OR and how we had done bandage changes and all these things so that was kind of not the first clue that something was up but that was probably starting me back on the all right what's going on here like Mm -hmm. this should have gone this way and and it didn't. Um, then things kind of settled a little bit. Then she was having ear surgeries and they couldn't explain to us why, uh, when getting ear tubes is a very common procedure Mm -hmm. in young kids because of ear infections. When a baby is born with a cleft palate, you almost know automatically that they're going to get ear tubes because they're going to have issues with drainage and things. But her tubes fell out a lot sooner than they normally would. And then when they went to go put in a second set, the second set fell out. And then when they went to put in a third set, there was nothing to put them in anymore because her eardrums had worn away. Mm. And they couldn't figure that out. And why is that? And then um, I was we were seeing Gretchen Durkin. She was a really great uh, ENT that worked at Columbia St. Mary's. And she said, you know, I'm going to send you to this colleague of mine who has a really good understanding of ENT, but also plastics, Dr. Steve Harvey. And Dr. Harvey was the first one that noticed that Mo had, I think Dr. Durkin said something about it, but she kind of said it in passing. But I remember Dr. Harvey saying, you know, she has this extra artery in her ear that shouldn't be there. It's a part of fetal circulation and it should have like dried up, basically. That's a really unprofessional way of explaining that. But it shouldn't be there anymore. And the stapedial artery is supposed to go away. So that's really an interesting thing. And he said it kind of like he had cogs turning in his Mm -hmm. head as well. Um, And so we couldn't get those things figured out. So that was a lot of questioning, like, what is going on here? What is going on here? But, you know, with all of these things that she was doing, she was otherwise very healthy. She was my healthiest child you know, fever-wise, stomach-flu-wise, all those things, she didn't have those things. She just had, She always had to have surgery and have these parts put back together and things. That when she actually hit kind of a lull, and that was when we started talking about having another baby, which ended up being Bridget, um, and Bridget was born in 2001, and then that was when this back thing started. And I would say... 2002, 2003, that was all of a sudden it was like things were coming from all corners of the room. The snowball was growing because,
0: you know, parts were weak. and. Mm -hmm. Well, how many ear surgeries?
1: Uh, Ear surgeries, I would say, I should have done the math before I came here tonight. I want to say she's had uh, six or seven. And, ear surgeries. and the ear surgeries that she's had, like the original ear surgeries that she had were like these common, like let's put tubes in kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But then when they noticed that the eardrum was wearing away on one side, they said, you know, we can do this thing. It's kind of a one-time fix. We're going to take some fascia from behind her ear and we're going to make a, we're going to make her an eardrum. And that worked for like six weeks. And then I said, okay, you said that was a one-time deal. And they said, well, yeah, usually, but we're going to have you talk to this other person. So then they tried it two or three more times, but when they were doing that, they actually removed the ear from the head. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't take it all the way off. They actually pin it to your nose, work on the ear, and then they put your ear back. She went through that a few times. And then she had these tumors growing in her ear, a thing called a cholesteatoma, which you can either be born with, Or you a lot of people that have holes in their eardrums get these cholesteatomas because there's an entryway into the middle of the ear. Um, and instead of, you know, sloughing off your tissue and it going out your ear Mm -hmm. because it has a place to fall into, that's Mm -hmm. and it kinda collects. And the, the tumor itself is a benign tumor. It's not a cancerous tumor. The problem with it though is is that it attaches to bone and nerve and can render someone you know, a complete loss of hearing. Um, In Mo's case, they were very concerned because her bones of hearing were very fragile and they were afraid that if this was left to its own devices, it would actually eat up the bone. Okay. And she wouldn't be a candidate to put like prosthetic bones in to have her hear. Um, So once again, I I would say by the time Mo hit uh, her second grade, year, things went in all directions, body system-wise. And I can remember giving, trying to give her history to the cardiology intern the very first time we were at Children's Hospital not Herma Heart Center. And I could, it was almost like I was watching myself try to give her history and knowing it was so scattered, and this poor woman was trying to like write things down <laughs> and then she's looking at me and i can feel like my anxiety of 1 is i'm just trying to give you all this information 2 is i don't have a good way of giving you all this information in a directed thing and right. 3 is i'm mad at myself that i'm a nurse and i can't give like a succinct kind of thing right um so wow this is we're really down a rabbit hole on this one um Let me get back to this Loewy's Dietz. So connective tissue disease, Mm -hmm. third chromosome, TGFBR1 or 2, and it was not named until 2005, but the syndrome was was not named. The genetic piece of it um, was being researched in the early 2000s, and when the aneurysm was found and we went back to Dr. Breik, uh, for genetic testing again, she said, you know, there, I don't, I, she said in my heart of hearts, I know she does not have Marfan because even though she has a long body, like someone with Marfan syndrome um, and she has long fingers, like somebody with that. And there's some body measurements, your torso is usually a little shorter than your uh, wingspan of your arms. She said, Marfan uh, patients do not have these contractured hands. They don't have a cleft palate. They don't have a bifid uvula.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Although she didn't use the word bifid uvula. She said they don't have a uvula the way her uvula was. Mm-hmm. She said, but I know a guy who has a lab. at He was at Tulane, but he just moved to Pennsylvania. Same as Dr. James Highland. And he is running tests on this new thing they're calling Marfan type 2 and i talked to him and he will give you a two for one deal on your genetics <laughs> and they're going to run both genes for you for the wonderful price of about $5,000 i think it was at the time um and so we did that like we did that blood draw in october and then they had to be able to read all that genetic code and we got an answer it was st nicks day of 2004 so it's december 6th and they said she did not come back positive for marfan but she came back for this thing called marfan type 2 and that was at a point where it was okay great you kind of got an answer not so great what does that mean what doors are opening they still haven't decided how they're going to operate on her heart um Somebody's walking around with a big aneurysm that's nerve wracking and, and those kind of things. That
0: was part of the need to try and find out what was causing this before they did any repair to the heart. Um was that kind of what drove this a little bit?
1: A little bit. It was interesting because uh Dr. Bright uh, I had worked with she would she would be the geneticist that would come in and work with the babies at the uh in the NICU at St. Mary's and she was over at children's and I'm sure over at St. Joe's and you know, everyone else that had an NICU. But she had um, said to me early on, you know, these are the things that I think Maureen has, and I'm taking her in my briefcase to every conference that I go to, but I haven't found anybody like her yet. That when the aneurysm was discovered, and they said, you need to check in with genetics again, she had this article pulled up, and it was um, two family lines. One was in Japan and one was in France. And the really scary similarity in these family lines were these people that were dying as teenagers from ruptured aneurysms, from dissections. And at this time, Mo was nine and a half. And in this article that she had been looking at these researchers, And there were people that were dying, and they were 14 and 15 years old, and that did not seem very far away for me when I'm looking at my nine-and-a-half-year-old. And And she said, "We once they got this marker back, she said, we need to do two things here, because Maureen had a tumor in her ear and then this aneurysm. And she said, I think they really need to operate on her heart. I think they really need to move forward because... We don't have a whole lot of information, but the information we have shows us that at this growth, and we don't know how long it's been there, we don't know how long it's going to
0: last. And part of what I gathered from the book and talking about the section, you can live with an aneurysm.
1: Correct. For a long time, depending on what the measurement is.
0: Right. So was the general consensus, okay, she has an aneurysm, let's just kind of keep an eye on it until this this information came to light?
1: Um, In some regards, the tricky thing was, uh, as kids grow, you have to get through a certain amount of growth depending on which part of the heart you're working on what part of the vessel you're working on. And so one of the early thoughts was, we'll get her to 13. She'll have gone through a lot of like the beginnings of teenage growth and cycles and and those kind of things. Um, And then we'll operate. We'll take measurements. If the measurements aren't changing, then we know she's stable. And they do measurements by echocardiogram, which is a, um, like an ultrasound of your heart. And they had just started, which we didn't even realize this till after the fact, when Maureen had her first cardiac MRI. it was She was like one of the first people at Children's Hospital to try out this new technology. And the only reason we found that out was the following year, they were going to be presenting the information at this parent education all-day-long conference, and they asked if they could take a picture of her to put in the PowerPoint presentation <laughs> because the technology was so new. And I was like, oh, okay, we really are on the cutting edge here. Um, so their their thought was, we know she doesn't have Marfan, but it's kind of like Marfan, so we're going to treat her like Marfan, and we're going to... We're going to do these measurements and just watch these measurements. And at the time, and I think those things, I don't follow Marfan as closely as I do Lois Dietz, but at the time the measurement for Marfan was a bit higher than what her particular measurement of her aneurysm was. And so they're telling us this, but there's this pit in my stomach. Because yes, you can live with an aneurysm for a long time. Some people are live with aneurysms for years before they know they have them. But the little bit that I knew about connective tissue disease and just at the base of if my thing that is supposed to keep parts together is weak and now I have this blood vessel, the major blood vessel for the body is stretching. How much does it get to stretch before it doesn't stretch anymore and it just breaks? Because mm-hmm. if I have a blood vessel in my hand break, I can do some things about that and, you know, get to it and the whole thing. If I have the major blood vessel that feeds my body break, I I, I can't do much for that mm-hmm. once it's broken. And so I think For me personally, that was, that is literally what kept me up night on night on night. It's what. That was the ticking time bomb. It was, it truly was. And when you have three other kids and you have a husband who's thinking a lot of the same things, but not necessarily, we aren't necessarily talking about them all the time. Mm -hmm. um, Or I'm talking about them more than I probably could have talked about at the time (laughs) or whatever, because talk therapy is my thing. That's why I have low blood pressure. I just talk all the time. (laughs) Um, You know, that was really, it was scary and it was frustrating. And, you know, in retrospect, you know what? The physicians and and nurses at Children's, they were doing the best they could at at the time with the information that they had. But when you're a parent in that situation, you want everything last Thursday, you know? So that started, once I had a name, then of course, then it was looking in the Marfan Foundation and, you know, they had a resource nurse and could I send her this, could she send me information? And I would get these packs in the mail about different things. And that, that is when things started to kind of come to light to me about why couldn't we have connected these dots so much sooner? Because I'm reading these packets on orthopedics and then um, heart health. Um, oh, the, the not so much about the ears, but all these different things. And I'm looking and I'm highlighting and highlighting. At one point, there was there was more highlighter on the paper than than there right. was just the regular words. And Brian came to bed one night. I remember I was reading about like reproductive health with people that have Marfan mm-hmm. and when you start talking about things about pregnancy and that was my world, that was my professional world. And I wasn't sobbing, but I had a lot of tears in my eyes when he came to bed, he'd brushed his teeth and he came to bed and I had this whole packet and this yellow highlighter that pretty much just run out of ink. And he kind of put the papers down. He said, you you need to stop. You need to stop reading this. You need to just put this away now. And I just kind of held these papers up to him and I said, how could people not see this? How could we not have seen this so long ago? She's right here. She's, she's in all of these words. She's in on these papers. How could this not have been? And it's not until several years later that I have taken a heart more about, you know, they were doing the best they could with the information that they had at the time. right? And when I sent something to the Marfan's foundation, the resource nurse. I said, I know my daughter doesn't have Marfan. She has this thing, Marfan type two. And we're just looking for other opinions about like surgical options and things. Um, you know, could you put us in a good direction? I have a brother who's a physician in Colorado. And so he was kind of helping me Colorado wise and, you know, talking to people he might know and what we should do and things. Um, and then they wrote me back right away and they said, Well, you know, we have, your daughter doesn't have Marfan, but we have a physician that's working on this Marfan type two. Would you mind if we shared her records? I said, Absolutely. Go right ahead. Just whatever. And I want to say that was the 24th of January, 2005. And I had an email sent to my house on the 31st of January from a man named Dr. Hal Dietz. And I had been at work all day and came home briefly to get my kids fed homework started before I had to go back down and teach childbirth class. And he had written me an email and he said, I've seen your daughter's records and we need to talk about immediate progress on this or immediate treatment Mm -hmm. or something. And I remember looking at Brian saying, well, what do you think immediate needs? And he goes, I have no idea. And then I had to leave. And the next morning at like eight o'clock in the morning or two days later at eight o'clock in the morning, the phone was ringing and it was Dr. Hal Dietz from Johns Hopkins. And
0: he said, why hadn't you answered me? He said,
1: <laughs> is this Mrs. Jurgens?" And I had, I, I'm normally out of bed before eight o'clock in the no. morning, but I had worked at the hospital till about 1230 yeah. and the kids were off of school. And so I was kind of had that sleepy voice. And I kept thinking, what kind of telemarketer is this calling me at eight, yeah. eight o'clock in the morning? And he said, I sent you an email and I I said, oh, yes. And he said, tell me a little bit about your daughter's history again. And then after talking for a few minutes, he said, I know I I haven't seen your daughter. He said, but I can almost tell you exactly what's going on right now. I just published a paper on the 31st of January. And now this is, I think it's the 2nd of February or whatever date it was. It was only a few days later. He said, I think this is what your daughter has. There's not a name to it, but there's this genetic marker. I said, "Oh yeah, I have the paper right in front of me. We had this diagnosed in December." He said, "Yeah, your daughter should have been in on an operating table months ago." And this is here's your step. He gave he gave me a um, bulleted point plan to call my cardiologist, call Maureen's cardiologist. The geneticist kind of walked me through this. He gave me his cell phone number. He gave me his office number. He said, if I don't hear from them or you can't get them to call me by whatever time of the day it was, he said, we will take care of you at Johns Hopkins. He said, this needs to to be taken care of.
0: So at this point, we have... I want to say, a, we have a, I'd say a clear diagnosis of what's been causing the issues. And how old is Mo at this point? Nine and a half. Nine and a half years old. So we, we have, it's, it's one of these hallelujah, I've got an answer. We know why.
1: Oh crap, we got an answer.
0: <laughs> Sorry, can I say crap? You can say crap. You can <laughs> say anything you want. Oh, well. Um, you're entitled. I
1: try, I try not to say that, but.
0: But um, you can, you can get worse if you want. But, <laughs> But, um, so we have our answer in, in, in a way. So we have, and unfortunately being a genetic dis- disorder, there's no real treatments. You're just, cor- you're correcting issues. Right. You're still there's, fixing things.
1: There's no, whenever you have something genetically based, there's no cure.
0: It's never going to go away.
1: It's never going to go away. And that can be a frustrating sticking point when people say, oh, I'm raising money for a cure. am <laughs> like... Yeah. No, you're raising money for a treatment plan.
0: <laughs> well, at, so at this point, it's, I, I guess, th- you don't have a cure. There's nothing that's ever going to stop these issues. But you have a treatment plan. You have a path that you know you have to follow. Right. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit on you here, because as we go through the book, Mo has her heart surgery. She had two?
1: Uh, she had two heart surgeries. She has two heart
0: surgeries. Uh, she has continued corrections of back and neck issues from connective tissue and, mm-hmm. and misalignment of spine and, and bones aren't where mm-hmm. they're supposed to be. But with this diagnosis now, you at least have a little bit of a roadmap, what to look for and where to go. And was it today or yesterday? When was her MRI again?
1: Uh, her MRI was Tuesday.
0: Tuesday. Okay. Um, gotta love Facebook. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I love Facebook. <laughs> so... What is her process now? What is Mo's, uh, what is her treatment path with Lowe's deeds?
1: Okay. Well, to back up just a little bit, when she was diagnosed, when it didn't have a name, she was about the 30th person that they knew about in the United States. There are a whole lot more people that have it they just don't know they have it. Right. And right away, after they named it, in 2005 to Lois Dietz. And Lois Dietz is named for Bart Lois, who is a geneticist in Belgium. And he had worked his fellowship under Hal Dietz at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. And they had tons of people working on this, but they got like the naming rights or however they did Mm -hmm. that. We've always joked about, well, shouldn't have Hal's name been first, but Dietz Lois just, you know, it's not that ring to it um but so one is they identified this mm-hmm. and but then it was okay it's genetic so we know we can't cure it but what are the treatment plans well the emergency treatment things like in mo's case it was you have an aneurysm in your your uh, diameter of your aorta should be about two and a half uh centimeters or so mm-hmm uh, Moe's was, at the time she was operated on, was uh, five and a half. She was 68 pounds, this mm. little skinny thing. Um, and the other thing that's different about Louis Dietz versus some of these other connective tissue diseases when it comes to the aneurysm growth, uh, and I'm going to use Marfan as an example, you can say, okay, when this reaches four centimeters. When this reaches four and a half centimeters, we know we have to repair this. We have to take that part out, put it in an artificial piece or whatever mm-hmm. it is. lois Dietz, there is never a real number to go by. There are some guides, but they base it more off of these things called Z-scores and it has to do with statistics in your body surface area, um, the amount of growth in a certain period of time. And you could have someone with Lois Dietz that has an aneurysm, of 3.5 centimeters and you could have somebody that has an aneurysm like Mo was at 5.5 centimeters and by the grace of God hers didn't break but the really tragic story in the first phone call that I had with Dr. Dietz was in trying to get his point across which he didn't have to get his point across to me right was he had 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 a younger child who had a much smaller aneurysm that had been diagnosed on let's say like a a Monday or a Tuesday, and they said, "You know what? We need to get her into the operating room. We need to fix this." And the surgery was scheduled for the following week, and that baby died the day before because and it was a smaller aneurysm. But with Lois Dietz, there's this kind of questionable thing. It's gotten better over the years of how they're measuring and and um, kind of those guidelines mm-hmm. and things. The other really great progress that has been made for Lois Dietz, Marfans, I'm not sure which other connective tissue disease with aneurysm basis to them use this, but there's a blood pressure medicine called Losartan that um, Hal, in his mice uh, labs in Baltimore, along with a lot of other research people and other research people in other places across the United States, um, found this happy side effect of these higher doses of low sartan, even if you have low blood pressure, this stops the growth of aneurysms. Hmm. And for some, it keeps them from starting, which has been an interesting thing for us. Mo was nine and a half years old when she was diagnosed. We have now gotten to know families over the years that we've watched their we are watching their babies grow up. Connor just graduated from preschool today. Yeah. And he we met him as a baby. And, um, you know, he started on low sartan. Um, we, a number of other families that we have met, they're, they're getting a diagnosis earlier and they're starting these treatment plans. So it's holding those things off. I mean, the ultimate goal obviously would be, wouldn't it be great if we could give this medicine and you never have to have open heart surgery? Yeah. You know, that's the ultimate goal. I don't know if they'll ever reach it. But right. there have been really great strides with this particular treatment plan just in that portion of it, because remember, connective tissue disease is everywhere, so you you have orthopedic issues, and sure. you have hearing issues, you have dental issues. Um, there's another uh, great medical duo out of Johns Hopkins, um, who are husband and wife duo, the Guerrero's. Pam Guerrero is a, an allergist, and her husband Tony is a GI specialist, and in their fellowships, they dedicated their research to Louis Dietz in those parts, you know, mm-hmm. body systems. And PAM was hired about a year or so ago, almost two years ago now, I think, to the National Institutes of Health and has started this huge, almost all-encompassing Louis Dietz study that Mo uh was enrolled in about a year ago and I was enrolled in it because they use me as the control because I don't I'm not a carrier for Louis Dietz. I, I don't have any of that in my genetic code. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like her control as she goes through. And we have met with just about every specialist you could think of that they're doing research on. I mean they're doing dental research. They're doing bone density research, cardiac research, GI research, allergy, mental health, biofeedback, all of these things. And so that's been a really amazing thing as well. So treatment-wise or prognosis-wise or progress-wise, for Mo in particular, um, Lois Dietz is a very individual syndrome. So you can have a family, let's say, that has four people that have Lois Dietz. Each one of them is going to be different from the person they're related to. It's that individualized. Mm -hmm. Mo is the only one in our family with Lois Dietz. She had this because of a thing called a sporadic mutation. At the time of conception, for whatever reason, the amino acids and DNA and RNA, all that stuff got kind of jumbled, and that's how she ended up with this. We have families where one parent has had this and now some of their children have it and some of their children don't, don't. Okay. So, you know so it it kind of depends right. there's a lot of different ways it can be right. passed on and the treatment or prognosis for each person truly is an individual treatment
0: so, so i probably didn't
1: answer your question oh no that's alright
0: <laughs> um and and, and moles uh, when i look at the list of Um, well, what, what, what off of their website, uh, Lloyd Dietz website, she, she, she almost checks every box. Yeah. I mean, in, in some cases, I guess from maybe a clinical standpoint, she's a gem, (laughs) right? I mean, they, they gotta, they can check everything on her. They don't have that, you know, one symptom here, one symptom there, pull your hair out. Right. Um. But on the other hand, it's, it's, it's been a road for you and your family. It's been a, it's a reading the book, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not a big, strong, I mean, I, you know, I'm a guy, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I'm a typical, typical guy, you know, I, I had to set the book down because it got a little too intense for me and knowing you for almost 10 years now, yeah. um, I, I know what the outcome is reading this book. So it's, I, I knew there was light at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> so to speak. Um, So, but even knowing that, knowing Mo's progress, where she's going. I mean, we, we discussed, she graduates from nursing school in three days.
1: One of the hardest, what did she say? Guinness World Book of Records, the hardest degree you can get and i can tell you market university's program is really rigorous
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and my my sister's a graduate of that program also so um um definitely took the determination that's for sure um I, I, but reading the book and and it was it was intense in some points i i have to applaud you and your family for being what you are, it 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 amazes me because I'm reading this book. And I'm thinking, my God, at some point somebody's going to crack, something's going to give, and I think it speaks. You know, we spoke much earlier in the beginning of this about family and how important that is, mm-hmm. and and having generational help mm-hmm. and and guidance and and having that in your lives. I, I was, I was waiting for something to crack. I was, I was just like, something's going to give. I got to put this down because I'm going to give. <laughs> and so I have to applaud you and your family as, I I don't know how normal, I do say normal people, you're normal. You bring this up in the book too. The, 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 the Jurgens normal.
1: Is a different normal. Is a different somebody normal. Somebody else is normal.
0: And, um, you know, I, I kind of, not that it was anywhere on this level, but, you know, my experience with that was my mother had MS. And we grew up having to be, to help. Mom's mobility was limited at times. As she got older and the disease progressed, you'd a little bit more, eat a little bit more. And, you know, we'd go to mass and mom would be in a wheelchair and people, oh, you know, you kids are such saints. You must help your mom. And and we don't know any different. Right. Because that's what you were born into, right? That's what you were born into. And... But, but I do have to, I just got to get that. I have to applaud you and Brian and, and your kids because what I know of them, uh, you raise some great human beings. Oh, thank you. And under tough circumstances. I mean, there are a lot of, in the book you talk about how Tim, Tim seemed to struggle the most with it out, out of your children. And I know you, you mentioned, you know, sometimes you feel Charlie might've been cheated from his childhood. Um you bring that up once or mm-hmm. twice and they're great. I mean, it, it's, it's almost, if you, if you took the surgeries and, um, the surgeries and the hardships and, and, and not just time wise, mental wise, stress wise, you know, monetary wise, it's it, it, it's almost storybook. I mean, you've got some great kids, they're on great paths. Um, Despite all this, where some people might use it as an excuse to have an issue, which I think is all too common these days. Well, depending.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I think you know, in that regard, um, when I was writing, when I was writing the book, and I went to these, um, was in this really wonderful writing group um, at the Marion Center, the Redbird Writing Group. Um, every once in a while, people would say this just almost doesn't seem real because you aren't showing that you're arguing or you're not showing this or, you know, Brian is kind of like the silent partner kind of thing. And I'll say, well, if you've ever met my husband (laughs) and you've met me and I just talk all the time, uh, he reminded me tonight, make sure you let Steve ask some questions. Just don't talk the whole time. Um, but that's, I mean, and you know him, you know, his personality he's very low key, very even keel, very patient, one of the most patient men I've ever met in my life. Um, and I'm very fortunate and blessed to have him as my husband. Um, but, you know, I think whether we said it out loud to one another in the beginning of of this or not, it was, you know what, you get up in the morning and whatever presents itself, it's it's what you have to do. And right. some days you're going to do it splendidly things are going to be smooth and great and other days are just going to be some of the hardest things you've ever done in your life and you're not going to want to get up and you're going to lose your temper and you're going to be after your kids and you're going to be griping at your spouse and things like that but i can honestly say in the last 22 years brian and i have been married it'll be 27 years in july but the last 22 with Mo in this particular journey, which really involves her siblings' lives. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, we just, it's really, it, it's going to sound like a big cliche, but it it's one day at a time, and it's feeling triumphant even in the small things. It's having a, understanding and I think that you could probably empathize with this with your mom's situation that there were things that didn't ruffle your guys feathers because you had bigger things that you were dealing with so that sometimes your patience level for people that were mad that they chipped a nail or they missed their tea time On a good day, you could chuckle about it. On a right. bad day, you wanted to go and just sit these people down and say, do you even have a clue? But my my guess, when you talk about your parents and how you were raised, are very similar to how Brian and I were raised in that you're considerate of one another, you're considerate of, of other people, you try to treat people mm-hmm. the way that you want to be treated. You know that not everybody is going to treat you nicely. And the world isn't fair, so you're going to have to try to move along. And I think that that is what we have tried to, um, how we've tried to raise our kids. Yeah, we've had our struggles. We've had lots of struggles um, with anxiety and depression and anger and all those different parts of grief. I mean, Mo is here. She's great. She's doing wonderful. Uh, You know, she had... She's got more appointments coming up and that's just kind of our, our normal.
0: Mm-hmm. And that, that's something that's going to, I mean. And that's the just rest something of, that's the, rest the rest of her, of her life. life that's, it's going to be kind of maintenance.
1: It's, yeah, maintenance is a really good way of putting it because connective tissue wears down. I mean, even in a healthy person, think about what happens to people's knees when they get to be 40 and then 50 and 60 and so on. And that's with healthy tissue when you have tissue connective tissue disease or disorder, there's greater care for those parts of your body. But then there's also things that you have to constantly look at. And for a long time in the beginning, when she would have surgery after surgery, after surgery, people would say, well, this is it now, right? This this is it. She's done. She's done. Mm -hmm. And, depending on the mood that I was in or how tired I was or not on that particular time, <laughs> it would kind of, that, that would uh, kind of monitor the way that I would answer that question. Mm-hmm. But the base of it is, is it, she's never going to be done.
0: Right.
1: And for right now, so she graduates from Marquette this weekend. Um, she's, you know, has to concentrate on passing her boards. She would love more than anything to be a nurse at Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, there was for a very long period of time that Mo wanted nothing to do with healthcare as a professional. And you can get to high school, and then they start doing all those, you know, explore exams and where you're going to end up in your career and all those things.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, I remember taking those, and just again as a side note. uh, I scored a 23% mechanical reasoning on that test. Really? (laughs) And, And for 20 years, I worked on automobiles.
1: So, well, all, you know, anytime anybody would say, Well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you think you want to do for the longest time? She'd say, I don't know, but I know I don't want to work in a hospital. And then it was kind of funny. She was, it was like her sophomore year of high school, and she came home one day. I don't even know what we were doing or what we'd been talking about. But she said, You know, I kind of know a little bit about hospitals. and I said, <laughs> You know a lot about hospitals. you know more about hospitals than somebody who's lived on this earth for eighty years yeah and she said no i I think i might I think I might think about nursing and i okay, and being a nurse myself all these years, part of you is just elated like." I'm going to have a child following my footsteps in that profession. But there was a bigger part of me that has worried about the stress that it takes, first of all, to get through a nursing program, and your sister could talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, But knowing the physical demands on her body that already has great demand on it. Mm -hmm. And one of the amazing things about Mo is she has this absolutely wonderful sense of humor and sarcasm <laughs> self depreciating at times um, and has a really good grasp on taking care of people mm-hmm. she she has a hearing loss, but she's an excellent listener if that makes sense mm-hmm. and uh you know, I never had a worry that she would you know, like fail nursing school or not get through nursing school. She's very smart. She made the dean's list. That's something I can never say I ever did going to nursing school. But it it's the, the concerns that I have had and we've had conversations about it. She's had conversations about it with her own healthcare care professionals um, taking care of her about how careful she'll have to be with her body. I mean, someone that's healthy that goes into nursing and finds out real quick about how you can hurt your back, Mm -hmm. how you can hurt your feet, how you can hurt your neck, and things like that, she's going into this now with a lot of other things that she's got Mm -hmm. to figure out how to do. And I have no doubt she will figure out how to do that. She Mm -hmm. will manage that. Um, But as a mother, you know, it's an interesting thing in writing this book. I always said I wrote it kind of from a threefold perspective. One was this kind of medical mystery and this journey of this medical mystery and figuring it out right along with the physicians and the nurses and everybody else that was helping us. It was written from a perspective of being a nurse, being a critical care nurse at one point. Mm -hmm. And, oh, wait, is this my patient or is this my child? And Mm -hmm. how do I divide being a mom and being a nurse? And then the, the other large chunk of it is being Catholic. And what does it mean? What did it mean to be Catholic? What does it, what does it mean to be Catholic now? And what did it mean for me to be a Catholic when I was in grade school, high school, college, when I was first married, when I had my first child, and then I had three more children? And Mm -hmm. how did that change? And, you know, we kind of alluded to it very early on in this Mm -hmm. conversation about, you know, how, you know, generational impact and things like that. When I talk about faith, you know, some people, you talked about, you know, some people making an excuse or a crotch or things like that. For some people, they would turn their back on whatever faith they'd been raised in, Mm -hmm. if they had been raised in one. But for me, that was never an option. Mm -hmm. And I I am not, I am no saint. I am no holy person. I am not perfect by any means. um, And I'm not really... A holy roller I hope people don't think I'm a holy roller I do wear a rosary that makes <laughs> me intact well you
0: know and <laughs> but you speak of that and and it, it is very clear and 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 I'm I'm gonna guess this is one of the reasons that your your family is the way it is um, to this point your immediate family you know and is that was a big part of uh, I, I, again, coming through the book and reading it, mm-hmm. that, that that your faith was—it wasn't a crutch, but it 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 brought perspective for you. Um, it was something you embraced through this whole process, and and again, I th- this is a snapshot of your mm-hmm. life. This is uh, the book covers approximately thirteen 15, thirteen thirteen 14. years. So. And, and there's a few more that you know that went right. on before and after, <laughs> right? Um, but it, but it, but it's very clear to the reader, and and I found great comfort in this on how that helped bring you through, helped kind of explain some of these things, helped help. I don't want to say it was a coping mechanism, but it did help you cope. Well, yeah. Oh, most definitely.
1: And I I think it, when I was in the early stages of writing this and. I probably didn't even answer that question in the beginning either. It was a lot of off of the journals that I had kept, but then also photographs that I've taken. Um, And, you know, you've helped me with my photography over the years. But photography has become this real obsession for me and is very soothing for me to, even in a stressful situation, to take pictures. Because in some of the writing for this, when I was bringing writing pieces to these writing groups, to these roundtables, I would look at a photograph that was taken during something, during this, you know, were we in the hospital, were we having a picnic, you know, what what was it, was I at church or whatever, and really concentrating on that photograph and kind of going through a guided imagery mental exercise, which is what I do with pregnant people when they're in labor, if that's something that's helpful to them. Mm -hmm. And so that was a soothing thing or a coping thing for that um so it was a combination of journals but then also this writing once i got to a certain point and when it comes to catholic faith for me you can use the word coping i you know for me without my faith i wouldn't be able to cope with anything and when i had started this writing and my friend mora she'd have me come to her house and we would read through these pages and things she'd say you know okay i know that you're catholic and that's very important to you she said are you at one point she kind of questioned about you know how how much i was writing about it not in a bad way Mm -hmm. but she said that's what's so great about this is you could have somebody that comes from a completely different faith background it doesn't even have to be a christian background Mm -hmm. it could be some you know some other something Mm -hmm. if you have that kind of moral compass you have that foundation whatever it is that you lean on in that foundation this is going to speak to that right you know for someone for me yeah it is i'm you know i'm catholic and i say my rosary and whatever but for somebody else and it, it's not about going into a church maybe it's them finding their mountaintop maybe right. it's them going to their beach or maybe it's them going to their temple or you know whatever mm-hmm. it is and if if that is how they have been raised or that's what they have found later in life that's you know that's what centers them that's what keeps them moving and for me that ha- i and i always say this i won't i won't speak for my kids and i won't speak for my husband because they have their own individual feelings and thoughts. Brian and I have done the best we can to raise our children in the Catholic faith and then it's up to them to decide what are they going to do with this. But I think they have found over the years how um, helpful and soothing it can be in a really chaotic situation. Mm
0: -hmm. Couple things I made. I made notes while writing the while reading the book. Um, <laughs> oh, it's
1: like a class.
0: <laughs> it was. It was a little bit. It was. Um...
1: Which I actually Maureen and I do a class together now at Marquette. Every we've done five classes or six classes. They use it as a case as a case study for graduate nurse practitioner students at Marquette. And then I get to go for three hours and pretend that I have my master's degree and I can teach in a university. <laughs> oh.
0: speaking to that um as you said now Moa decided to go into healthcare she's going to be taking her boards hopefully passing yeah um, that that's wonderful so her nothing has held her back at any point if reading this book nothing has held her back aside from i'd say doctor's orders you can't do that that and and rightfully so in some cases right Um, so, so I have to applaud that spirit. Um, one thing I made a note of and one thing I'm going to touch base on before I get to that though, um, your husband does talk because I heard all about your trip to Ireland. Oh boy. During, during one of my eye exams. So, um, Kate's husband is, is also. It's all very,
1: it's a great thing about Milwaukee. We're all very interwoven. Well, it's, it, it, it
0: is, it, it, (laughs) and if we had a little bit more time, I'd tell the story. Because it, it's again, one of those things you think you live in a big city and, and, um, I'm going to tell it anyway, cause I like Brian. And, uh, we were, I'm sitting in the chair and I'm getting the eyes dilated and doing the whole thing and, you know, getting the usual questions. Do you have any problems here? Do you have any problems there? And and I'm a type two diabetic. So of course there's a whole other issue there. And I said, you know, I, I only, um, I only really get blurry vision when I'm, when I'm taking a lot of pictures. I said, you know, cause it's like the viewfinder is like a lens. And then yeah. when I put the camera down, I, I lose distance. And I, he says, oh, my wife takes pictures. Yeah. And I said, oh, what kind of camera does she have? And that 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 And we had met a few years prior at, at um, the Padre, at the Padre basketball tournament. And we were both taking pictures and we, I struck up a conversation and we kind of shared some equipment and it was, it was fun. It was great. And, um, and I'm very, you know, talk about life's little moments where where they start and where they end right. up. But, um, so I said, oh, what kind of camera? Oh yeah. She, she said, um, yeah, her brother, you know, takes pictures and he gave her this camera and da, 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 and she takes pictures for the kids' grade schools. And I said, oh, what grade school do the kids go to? And he said, oh, we live in Shorewood. They go to St. Roberts. And I, the light bulb went off. I looked at him and I said, you're Kate's husband? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me like. How do you know my wife, yeah, like, you oh. know? So that was a little awkward, but uh, it was very funny because in the next time, the next year I went in for my annual checkup, um, you say Brian is a man, of few words at times. I heard all about your trip to Ireland and, and well, that's another, that's a whole that, other podcast. Well,
1: <laughs> and it, and it may be another book.
0: All right, right. So that's, uh, well, that, and very good one at that. So i <laughs> So I heard all about that during my, in the length of my eye exam. So, but, so I, <laughs> I, I do like Brian a lot. He, uh, <laughs> he's a good guy. Um, now the Louie Dietz, uh, syndrome has a foundation. Yes. And you will be able to find, I'll put this, uh, for those people that wish to go to our website, the, uh, my, the Listen Up Milwaukee website, there'll be a link for it there. I'm going to have a link to your book there. Um trying to figure out how to work this in here. But so we'll have links for that. Um so people who want more information on Louis Deets and and they also then have a very nice website which can link you to other things. So if people are either looking for some answers or just have some questions we couldn't cover here. And I have to apologize because we're running a bit long and I know you worked all day and I worked all day. Um but one the, the big note that kept I Kept coming back to me and both you and your husband are in the healthcare professionals. You, you have, I, I don't want to say means because that, that brings on a whole different type of thing, right. but you have a stable household. You, you, you have, again, a solid family foundation. Mo is a very, if you, when you read the book, and I don't want to give it away, but when you read the book, you get a great feeling for Mo's spirit. And what a strong personality she is. And this is what I got from reading the book, so I'm giving you my book review. A bit. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, in a bit. Um, and one thing that c- kind of occurred to me was being as strong a personality and as strong a spirit as she is whether it was you or somebody else, that spirit was going to come into this world. And it was almost as if 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 she would have been born in different circumstances, in a different part of the city, in a different part of the country, in a different part of the world. I, and I don't know how you feel about this and not to kind of dream, but I don't think she'd be with us right now. I don't think she would have had the opportunities to make it to this point. Part of that is a kudos to you for being very dogged in your idea of health care, keeping an eye on her, asking those questions, wanting those answers, and, and not being able to get them. So
1: Being a PETA is what I would say. <laughs> I don't know if you remember reading that in the book. Pain in the ass. <laughs> Parent... <laughs>
0: But I, I honestly think that, for as much headache uh, headaches as you've gone through, the the the, the lack of sleep, the, the the time away from family, the hecticness, the that has gone through in your life be, caused by this syndrome, I don't think Mo would have, could have been born to a more perfect situation than what you guys have. And I almost look at it as. She was going to be coming. She's, she was going to be on this planet at some point in her life, at some point in time. And this was the perfect time to the perfect people. And I almost, the thing that just me coming back, and I don't know why I kept on it, but it was almost a gift for as, again, for as much that as your family has gone through, it was a gift. And it's going to be a gift to a lot of other people in this world. Because of the work you guys put in.
1: Well, that's quite a huge compliment. I, take. I, 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 well, it's,
0: um, it's, and it, you don't need to respond. I did, <laughs> but that, that's what I got out of this. That's what I'm reading. And, um, I, I have a friend, um, uh, a, 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 again, we're a second generation family of friends. Right. My parents were friends with my friend Mike's parents. We're friends with him and his family. And, um, they adopted, uh, his sister was adopted. And his father made the comment once that people come up as, oh, you know, she's really not your daughter. And Ken's response was always, you know, the good Lord, his response was, uh, how did he always put it? We may not have given birth to her, but the good Lord gave her to us just like our other two kids. And she is my daughter no matter what. And that's kind of what was resonating with me when that comment came to my head was you, uh, you were gifted this and I, and, and I'm glad that it was given to you guys in a sense, because given her background through all the surgeries, through all the hospital visits, her desire to go into professional healthcare. If she helps one child, one person get through a fraction of what she's had to go through by her experiences and knowing what's going on there, God bless you.
1: Yeah, it's, I've thought about that, obviously, for a long, long time. Sometimes I don't think of it as often, but when people, you know, when something tragic happens or stressful and people say oh you know there's reason for everything or Mm. you know god knew what he was doing by Mm -hmm. giving her to you and you're a nurse and he's an eye doctor and you know and those kind of things um and and this last couple months especially as she's getting ready to graduate and you become very i've been warning my friends, and I was warning Mo a couple weeks ago. I said, "You know, I'm not usually a crier, but I've been crying an awful lot lately, <laughs> and there are going to be way more tears, and this is going to be very emotional for a lot of reasons." Um, that being said, it's that whole impact of one's person life, one person's life, on another. And yeah, you think about George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life mm-hmm. and those things. But George Frank Capra, he he had the he had the thing figured out. He mm-hmm. had he had the um, formula figured out. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, even in you know, you're in nursing school and you're doing these clinicals. And so Mo was fortunate enough to get a clinical at Children's in the fall. And I would get these texts. At, you know, she'd be done with her clinical, but I'd still have my clinic job running, and I'd have these texts from her. Oh, I ran into so-and-so today. She took care of me in recovery. Oh, I ran into so-and-so today. They were my nurse on this floor. Um, The last day she was there, uh, she ran into Mike um, Matterzak, who is, he was the PA, the physician's assistant for her heart surgeries, and I think he, like, coordinates the, cardiac PAs No, I could be wrong on that title but and Mike is just this sharp as attack, brilliant but so funny and just warm and compassionate man and he came around a corner and Mo was there in her scrubs she was following a nurse for the day and like doing g-tube rounds or something and all of a sudden Mo heard this voice like <laughs> what are you doing here in scrubs <laughs> And so they got <laughs> to spend quite a bit of time together that oh. day. And they were sending me pictures at the end of their shift, which was yeah. fun for me. Right. But also that whole arc of mm-hmm. connection and that circle and coming mm-hmm. back to the beginning. And I think, you know, she had, she had a patient, um, this little four-year-old boy who had hearing aids. And so Mo came in to introduce herself and he noticed right away that she had hearing aids. And then she started to explain her stethoscope. Part of the blessing in our family is that I also have siblings who are hardworking, and also are, a number of them are healthcare professionals. I have my sister Terry is an audiologist and has helped us huge, huge, huge amount with hearing aids and things. Well, guess what? Maureen can't use a regular stethoscope because she doesn't have eardrums, so she can't hear if she puts the stethoscope in her ears. So it was this light bulb moment her freshman year when they buy like their pen light and their stethoscope and I write out this check and about 36 hours later it dawns on me oh I just bought you this beautiful orange because orange is her favorite color $150 stethoscope that's going to be a really nice decoration because it's not going to work for a stethoscope for you but my sister found a Bluetooth technology stethoscope that feeds the information to Maureen's hearing aid. And she wears it in a, in a pouch around her neck, the wires, and Mm -hmm. then it just has the diaphragm. So the joke was, Mo, they're going to worry when they say, when the patient hears they have a student nurse, first of all, then the student nurse is going to come in and (laughs) looks like they can't even use a stethoscope. Right. Um, And so she always had kind of an intro that she used, but Mm -hmm. when she took care of this little boy in the fall, his eyes got so big and was so excited to like see that here was a nurse taking care of him who had hearing aids and mm-hmm. had something like him. And she explained like how the stethoscope worked and all these things. And you know, those are the moments. Those are the moments that I hope that you know, she's working a night shift and she's physically struggling and having a hard time even people that are healthy struggle in the mm-hmm. night shift but i'm hoping that it's moments like that that she can kind of lean on to be like yep i'm in the right spot this is where i'm supposed to be this is what i'm doing and you know i just brian and i we we've done the best we could and without sounding like we're really egotistical i i think we've done a damn good job yeah I I, I don't mean to swear, but (laughs) um, well, now I'm
0: going to have to put this down as an expletive. Oh no! No, Just kidding, just kidding. Um,
1: but I I always say this, and and I said it today on my little thing on Facebook. We would not be here without the help of so many people. Whether it's the medical community and all the tricks of the trade and the technology and expertness and compassionate care, but friends and family and You know, so many people. It really, it does take a village. It Mm -hmm. takes a lot of people to get you to the right spot.
0: Well, I'm going to, before we wrap up here, I'm going to give you your Oscar moment. Oh, Lord.
1: (laughs) I don't even know what that means.
0: You have (laughs) two minutes before the music plays. Oh, shoot. (laughs) To get your shout-outs. My shout-outs. Run down your list.
1: Oh, oh. I wish I would have known this ahead of time. Uh, see. No. Well, who am I thankful for? I mean, God for putting me on this earth, but my parents and my grandparents and my husband and my siblings. To the whole Sankevitz clan, the Matthews clan. Uh all of my dear friends from Marquette. Stella and Ann and Jamie and Michael and Mark and Tim and Kim and Mary, my my roommates from college, um, and the girls that we still get together, Mary and Kim and Stella and Ann and myself. Um, Amy, who has been there since the beginning of all of my children. She was there for all of my, my labor and births. Um, all the people who have taken care of us at Children's Hospital, people who have taken care of us at Johns Hopkins, people who have taken care of us at Columbia St. Mary's, the people that I work with now, people who I've worked with in the past, the St. Roberts community, Steve Novak and Christina Novak. Um, You'll have to read
0: the book and Mar- to get that one.
1: <laughs> and Marquette, you know, Marquette University and Marquette Basketball. Um friends from St. Robert's and Divine Savior Holy Angels and Marquette High School. You know, it's it's so many people. I mean, I could never go on the Oscars because I would just go on and on and on. You know, I'm I'm thankful God put me on this earth. I am thankful that he gave me to the parents and to the siblings that I have. I'm thankful that he put Brian in my life, and I'm really thankful that he entrusted me with four really amazing, compassionate, kind children. As parents, you want to make sure your kids do a lot of things and be a lot of things. But in the end, if they are kind and loving human beings, you can't get a better passing grade than that. I, th- I don't think. I. There's a motto that I use when I When I teach people in classes, in childbirth classes, and then when I work with patients in the hospital, and they're trying to work through something or they're trying to do something to help themselves feel better, and I'll say, you know what, if it doesn't help, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, mentally, physically, or spiritually, it's probably okay. It might not be what your neighbor does or what your brother does or your sister does, but if it works for you and it doesn't hurt anybody else, mentally, physically, or spiritually, it's okay. And I think that's what Brian and I have tried to do with our children, and I, I think so far so good. I think we've we've done really well. Um,
0: well, I'd like to thank you for taking time, especially this week, because like I said, I've been seeing the Facebook post, <laughs> and 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 what 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 you got, what you had, what you've done, and what you've got ahead of you. Um, for the Wait, I need so much- to add another oh, shout out for okay. all
1: my Lois Dietz families, all my special Lois Dietz friends especially the Wade's. And I could name a whole bunch of other people, but
0: we have to wrap up. <laughs> oh. Sorry. and We don't want to, I don't want to play music. No. I don't want to play music on you. <laughs> don't, don't make me play you off stage. Um, but um, I want to thank you for your time and, and, and coming on and talking about the, and sharing this with us. It's Kate Jurgens. The name of the book is "Mo: a Lowy Deet Syndrome memoir, available on...
1: Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. dot com. Um,
0: Hardback and ebook?
1: Yes, correct.
0: Um You can learn more about Loey-Dietz syndrome at Lowy Louis dot org. And that will also take you to some other websites, but it is a great resource. It's very well put together. So if you do have questions, I think you can get them answered there. Um, I want to thank you again. We're hitting our time limit for how much I can post. So I I do, we're going to have to have you back. You want to come back sometime?
1: I Absolutely. Okay. And then maybe we'll get Mo to come back too, because yeah, she we, would be the one that you really want to talk to. You don't I, want to talk I, to
0: me. I, I, was so, you know, I was hoping you could bring her, but I know this week, not possible.
1: So. She's at the senior ball right now for so, senior week. So All right.
0: Well, I did want to get this in before graduation day, because this is my little gift to her. And so I appreciate you taking the time and knocking it out this week with me. Um, hopefully she likes it. Hopefully she'll be pleased. She'll, with...
1: she'll enjoy listening to you. I don't know about listening to her mother. <laughs> well,
0: then she'll only have to listen for about 10 minutes <laughs> and fast forward. No, just kidding. But again, Kate, thank you so much for coming out.
1: Thank you. This M- is, this has been great.
0: Fantastic. And again, the name of the book, Mo a Lowy Dietz syndrome memoir by Kate Turkins, native Milwaukeean. Thank you again. Thank you. And I'm your host, signing off, Steve Italiano for the Listen Up Milwaukee podcast. If you do have any comments for us, um, you can reach us at listenupmke at yahoo.com. And you can pick up these podcasts and find links to the Louis Dietz, Kate's book, and other podcast information at our podcast provider website, listenupmke.podbean.com. Thanks again.